Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. So today we're we're welcoming um uh I'm not sure if this is definitely not our first candidate, I don't think, but 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 certainly in the uh Left Anchor Hall of Fame uh, best candidates we've had on the podcast, Heidi Sloan, <laughs> who is running for Congress <laughs> in the um uh, the twenty fifth district of Texas. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm so flattered. That's amazing. <laughs> you did it. Well, yeah. <laughs> the first of many feats, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, we we so y- you are one of a, f- a few uh, DSA members who 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 are who are running. You know, there there are number number of folks, but um, but I, maybe just to get us uh, started off here. Um, could you tell us, uh, you know, just what inspired you to to make make the attempt? You know, because this is a thought that has gone through my head on occasion. You know, like hell, maybe I should run for Congress. And then I think about you know, like all my old tweets and like you know all my old <laughs> blog posts. And I think Ryan, well, Ryan, you are no Heidi Sloan. Let me tell you that. So you just leave it leave it to the the winners out there and. Uh, but what so what uh, what inspired that? And, uh, you know, how'd you come to that decision? Um, yeah, it certainly was not a decision that I made lightly or on my own, as you can imagine. Um, I have been told uh, more than a couple of times that I have a ridiculously wholesome background as far as work goes. And I think that that helps. But that is that is really where. Um, my inspiration comes from. So I was a pre-K teacher in a classroom with uh, a a lot of kids with varying needs for about seven years. And I loved that work. And um, I loved the building community there. And then I transitioned uh, into my current role, which is I'm a farmer. I work on a farm in the middle of a permanent supportive housing community for folks exiting homelessness here in Austin, Texas. And both of those jobs are extremely gratifying and um, I appreciate that work. And at the same time, um, knowing that as much as I could do myself to love on and to be kind and to, you know, do this thing where you're being the change in the world, that over the years I have watched so many people that I care about fall through the cracks and, And not just people I care about fall through the cracks, but also watch so many new individuals come down sort of the same trajectory and the same pipeline as the folks that I walk alongside of every day. And at some point, getting so frustrated and so fed up with this idea that every year more people are experiencing homelessness and the people that I love and care for are barely holding on in a system that has totally outcast them and totally um, devalued them. Just kind of put me over the edge. I had to do something, and and at first that was community organizing, and now it is it is this campaign. Yeah, that that's a story I've heard in in many contexts. Actually, um, um, one one recent one is is a book which just came out by Nicholas Lehman. Um, and a journalist for the New Yorker, and it's called Transaction Man. And a gr- really excellent part of the the book goes through um, 
this particular neighborhood in Chicago is called Chicago Lawn. Um, and it had, you know, it had been white ethnic like in the 40s and it became like majority black, I think. But anyway, you know, fairly tight knit community that was, you know, sort of holding it together in the post-war golden years of capitalism. And then, you know, when when the neoliberal turn happened in the 1970s, you had, you know, the, the community was just sort of like ripped apart, you know, like the jobs vanished and then you started getting all this crime and homelessness and, you know, all these people who are just sort of trying to struggle, hold on to their neighborhood and sort of like push back the encroaching blight. Um, they couldn't do it. And the reason they couldn't do it was because the things that were causing their problems really had nothing to do with them. It was about national policy. And, you know, the decisions of financiers who had been uh, deregulated, you know, 10 years ago, and then suddenly there's just this tidal wave of foreclosures that ends up with, like, every third house on the block being being boarded up, you know, and then people squatting in there and um, uh, dealing drugs and so on, and just, you know, all this social crisis that they are totally ill-equipped to deal with, and, and you know, the at root, even though they tried and, and in some cases succeeded— you know, the 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 levers of what was happening to them were controlled in Washington. And, um, you know, that that I feel like that that's happening. You know, that realization is coming coming over many people in a lot of different contexts. I like, you know, the the how society is structured in very in very many cases depends on some bureaucrat, you know, and like the SEC building next to Union Station. Right. And um you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, um, you're certainly not the only one I've, I've heard that story from at least. And it's, uh, it's, it's an, an, an interesting, you know, how, how people make that connection, uh, between their own lives and what, and like, you know, the things they see around them and, uh, you know, uh, what, you know, what the, people in Congress and the regulatory agencies are doing, right? Yeah. And I think that that is like this complex and really powerful tool that is used against us, uh, against the poor and the working class. And it, when we feel like our circumstances are the result of our own actions and our own choices and our own failures, then we are afraid and ashamed to speak about that to mm-hmm. one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the most powerful experiences I have had is talking to my neighbors, especially about things like uh, medical debt, which is just this hugely pervasive issue, this burden that so many of us are carrying. And we think we're carrying it alone because we did something wrong. But when we can get together and we can say, wait, you too. Yeah. And you then oh, then we can start to turn around and look at the structures that are that are causing this to not just be a personal problem but a collective problem. I I love that. I love the point there that's not simply about the structural cause of the oppression, the poverty, the homelessness, uh the social ills and not just even it's necessary in order to combat the elite powerful to get people organized and mobilized, but but the fact that one of the obstacles you're pointing to is the very shame born from 
the kind of hegemonic ideology that places all agency and responsibility in the individual as if there isn't the, these structural causes that are actually taking people away from, from their families or in, imprisoning them and, and leaving them homelessness and leaving them without medical care. And so that part of the solidarity and part of why DSA, I think, is a new kind of politics is not just in this is we need to do A, B, and C to make change happen, but to actually affectively change the way we think about our moral being and give us um, kind of peace and hope and then passion to to move. And, and we deserve better for those reasons, right? So I think that's a, a beautiful uh, twist on just what could be kind of just a uh, maybe just a materialist analysis, right? It's very, there's very, um, very much humanity and morality uh, in, in kind of the transformations that needs to happen for people, right? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, um, that first question about why why this campaign, why run for Congress is really a funny one, because I think I'm learning the answer as I go. Um, <laughs> and part of that answer for me, it turns out being in these spaces, these areas where politicians and candidates frequent and they speak to their constituency or they speak to the people who um, maybe can pull some levers for them. The the rhetoric there continues to be um, this hyper individualistic uh, siloed rhetoric. And it's it's this um, it's this uh, feeling that we are our vote and that's all we are. And politics is just us showing up at the polls and voting once a year or however often. And for me, I'm coming from this background where, where the most powerful things that I've ever been a part of have had nothing to do or had, have had very little to do with people voting. They have had mm. so much more to do with people showing up at their school or, or at their, in their healthcare or, um, or advocating for their neighborhood and the housing that is there. It, it is not, um, democracy for me is just like this, this, um, marginalized concept that people are using, um, to mean something that, that is not how I have meant it over the last years of my organizing life. And it's fascinating mm. to think about like the ramifications of how we talk about not just our needs and the effects of the systems on us, but our power that we don't recognize our power in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools, in our healthcare, in our environment, and all of these other places in addition to in our vote. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great point. And <clears throat> perhaps a good, uh, you know, transition into um, the next question, you know, t uh, t just tell us, can you tell us a little bit about the 25th district? You know, I, I think I'm probably not alone uh, in, in, uh, uh, thinking if when someone says, where is the Texas 25th district? I would not be able to tell you until I looked it up, which I did, you know, so we're talking about Austin, right? Um, and, you know, so, so what, well, or, or parts of and Austin, the 13 I counties, I believe in the, in the yeah. 25th, right? Um, uh -huh. but so, so what, what, you know, I was, uh, I was looking up some previous electoral history. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the, the last in 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 uh, 2018, right? The Democrat lost by like under 10 points. I think is that right? That's right. Yeah, and right then, around nine. Yeah, and then previously it was a little bit more than that. Um, 
you know, so we're we're talking about not a not a huge type of swing in terms of previous performance to 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 uh you know take this on. However, those previous demo uh uh Democrats were um you know I I think I'm pretty sure they weren't DSA members at least. So you know what um what is the 25th district like, and why do you think that you know your um political uh, approach is one that can win? Well, the 25th district is um, one of those gerrymandered districts that they try to make letters out of on the internet um, to spell <laughs> gerrymandered or whatever. Um, to but tell stories, to tell stories like to their kids. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it's 13 counties. It takes about um, four and a half hours for me to drive from one end of it to the other. Um, and it, a tiny little sliver of it goes through the middle of Austin. That is correct. And mm-hmm. then it it grabs some um, suburban areas that are really interesting because they are the areas uh, in which a lot of um, folks who are displaced from Austin um, as it gentrifies are moving to. So those are really excellent and and wonderful people to talk to and to hear from. It also takes um, a good swath of rural communities, um, which I love as a, as a farmer and someone who is just very um, enthralled and always has been fascinated by uh, particularly the building trades, uh, finding a lot of camaraderie in those areas, a lot of like-mindedness as far as um, what a good day's work looks like and, and the power and the strength in that. Uh, it has um, a lot of veterans in the city of Colleen, which is about in the middle of the district. Um, and then it goes all the way up almost to Fort Worth, Texas, not quite to Fort Worth, Texas, but some of the, the suburb areas there. And it is everyone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> demographically. Demographically and socioeconomically, like we get a little bit of everything, but that is honestly why it's so appealing. Um, you talked about the the closing of the gap last time, which was the cycle when Beto ran in Texas and, and we had a massive voter turnout and things really started to look a little bit different. This district, there is no one unifying thing you can say about it, except for that it's a working class district. Mm. And for me to, to really define what we mean when we say that and to call people in to mean this inclusive everyone but the owners uh, concept, the poor, the working class, people of color, rural white folks, um, folks who voted a different way last time, folks who may have voted for Trump last time, but who are losing their hospitals and their schools at unprecedented rates. This is the working class. And for me, that's that's so motivating to be able to go out and say you are you are more than um, how you have been pigeonholed and you are already the the movement that we are looking for. We're just going to build power together. Wonderful. How many people about approximately in the district? There are 762,000 people in the districts, and we intend to talk to at least 100,000 of them. Wow, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, 
a follow up there. Uh, you know, you, you talk about so yeah, as you say, this is like a like a real sort of just a just a a, a cross section of you know the American class structure. Um, but one one uh, one debate that that's been going on you know online recently has to do with a sort of what you might what you might call the upper middle class or the professional managerial class as as a uh, you know Barbara Ehrenreich uh, called it back in the day you know people who have uh you know k- kind of um you know you're, you're you're talking about people who are who are working for a living for the most part but they have jobs you know as supervisors or they you know they they're like doctors and like people are very well paid um, you know, lawyers, that type of thing. Um, but, but, you know, that, the, the Barbara Ehrenreich thing came many decades ago, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, you know, there's been some, some pushback or, or maybe some sort of like complication of this narrative that, that this sort of stratum of society is sort of like a bulwark of capitalism. Because one thing that's happened to like lawyers and doctors and nurses and so on to a, to a fairly significant degree in some cases, they've been sort of proletarianized. You know, all their special benefits have been eroded away. You know, they're, they're doing somewhat less, many of them, uh, so, somewhat worse rather than, than, they, than they used to do 20 or 30 years ago. And, you know, so there's been a, you know, a sense that because these people still are doing relatively quite well, but but a sense that they might be sort of brought on to a system, you know, to, to more kind of universal type benefits where to say that like, hey, you know, you're a nurse, you know, maybe you make 70, 80, 90,000 dollars a year as good money, but you are paying through the nose for your private health insurance and your private daycare and your private this and that. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, you are effectively very heavily taxed. Um, you know, the, 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 I've seen calculations that the American worker on average is taxed higher. If you include private health insurance premiums as part of that tax higher than any country, except for the Netherlands. Um, and so, there's a there's a sense in which you might start peeling, you know, the, these used to be like the bulwark of republicanism. And so, you know, Democrats like like Chuck Schumer, they want to bring those people in and saying like, oh, you, you think Trump is bad and we'll just like we'll bring you on together with like your previous views. But then there's another another uh, train of thought that says, you know, these this these folks are up for grabs. They have money and therefore power. And we can bring them on with an actual egalitarian poli- uh, politics to say that, you know, y- you know, you may be doing like pretty well relative to like uh, people on, you know, food stamps, but you're not doing that well relative to the big the big capitalists, the owners of, you know, Amazon. Um, and so what you should do is throw in with the with the rest of the working class and try to uh you know, put in some universal benefits funded by taxing Jeff Bezos. So I don't know any thoughts on that, like particular debate and how you and and if you've seen any sort of evidence for it one way or the other uh, in your in your campaigning. Definitely. So the professional managerial class in this area is a fascinating mix of liberal and Republican. Um, It doesn't quite fall as neatly into those same categories, 
but the material analysis is is very similar um that it is it is challenging to build solidarity amongst people who are not directly acknowledging the burden that capitalism puts on them whose lives feel pretty comfortable in the day to day but exactly exactly as you were saying it is when we can not just look at um sort of a sector but begin to approach individual human beings and their individual human needs that we have learned the most about how to move folks uh, who are at that level of of comfort and satisfaction. And and it's not everyone. We haven't like solved the puzzle or anything like that. But but for me, some of the most powerful conversations have been speaking with uh, folks who are retired in our district and who are concerned that they saved up so much money They bought such nice houses and yet the market continues to go up and up and up in price and all of their work scrambling and clutching and building is turning out to not keep them safe from the sprawl of of folks who are now wealthier than them because they're not on a fixed income in the same way. And and being able to actually say to someone who probably for their whole life was was um, truly believing they were going to make their own way, they were going to build their own security, that it's okay, Mm -hmm. that it's not your fault that this is happening and that we have your back. Um, Sounds very therapeutic. You know, a lot of uh, therapeutic approaches you've been um, talking about here in terms of how you're relating to the constituency. Yeah. And honestly, like that is, um, that is a fascinating part of this experience for me as someone who does sort of social work adjacent, um, career work to be able to, to go and to look at an, a crowd or a, a constituent and say, okay, what is this person? What defense mechanisms is this person putting up and how do I get around them to actually meet them where they are? Because I do deeply believe that we have, um, we, we have implicit solidarity. We are tied to one another and, and their good is tied to my good, but Hmm. it's drawing out those material, um, circumstances, whether it's healthcare or childcare, whether it's people who are moving further and further out of town or sitting in longer and longer lines of traffic every day, um, and it's not everybody, but I think listening goes a real long way in figuring out mm. how we create a little wedge and then continue to open it over time. Do, do you feel there's like a parallel in terms of the hard truths you have to speak to people who were sold a bill of goods? They were lied to. They were they they trusted capitalism. They trusted that if they worked hard, they did X, Y, and Z, that, that certain things would happen. And is it kind of akin to, you know, this is an abusive partner you're with and you have to leave him. And and socialism is the partner you can trust. And, and that's where, you know, you, you need to seek a healthy relationship with people that care about you. Is, is there like a parallel a little bit there? <laughs> I, I've never thought about it that way, but I'm sure that there is a parallel there of, of being able to, to ask. Um, why do I keep going back to the same kind of person? Why do I keep going back to the same kind of, you know, the same kind of job, the same kind of bank account, the same kind of, um, candidate 
Why yes. do I keep going back there? But seriously, this is what politicians do, right? A time and time again, the, the same false things that they say that keep resulting in actual harm, you know? Yeah, and and right. um, <clears throat> I mean, I've written this article many times, uh, just being like, you know, trying to 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 talk some sense into, you know, uh, my fellow professional class people, uh, to, to just say that, uh, you know, I remember when Obama tried to try to cut down the five twenty nine savings accounts a while ago, and it, you know, this is just the goofiest policy. With a tax advantage savings account, so you can sock away money for your uh, to to save you know save money for college, um, for a variety of reasons. Won't get into it. You know, I mean, it's just like all these tax credit things is just a disaster. And he tried to do that, and there was just this massive backlash from the the upper middle class type of folks. But you know, if you you think about like like Bernie Sanders free college type plans who would benefit the most from that in an immediate sense well certainly uh you know any uh working class or poor you know uh high school student who just who's like oh hey it's free now i'm gonna jump in yeah they would benefit a lot but like who goes to college for the most part like upper middle class families always send their kids to college and and they would benefit a lot so much more than this 529 crap you know, but but they, you know, it's just been t- the one percent and this top, you know, the point one percent have been using those people as a heat shield to protect their own wealth from taxation for so many years, and it really is a kind of like, like when when uh, you know when we're when we're electing uh, 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 you know a president or whatever, they say oh oh can't can't vote for the Democrat, they're going to raise your taxes. And then uh, when it comes time to do policy, they do a tax cut, and the top one percent collects like fifty, sixty, seventy percent of the of the winnings, you know. And it's like, come on, guys, <laughs> you know, come over to the good side. But um, the the uh, uh, to to shift gears a little bit, Heidi, um, I wanted to ask you about uh, DSA, um, how you got into that, uh, you know. What what inspired you to sort of join up, and what what uh, what attracted you about the the organization, and and how and how you know if if it's been a help to you in your campaign at all? Yeah, for sure. So I um, was inspired, like many people, to look into organizing, community organizing in 2016, um, realizing the struggle and the frustration that I had experienced personally in trying to combat, as we said earlier, a system of power on my own. And then on the the night of the election, realizing that that's what most of us had been doing. And clearly it hadn't been enough. Um, And watching that sort of public reaction, that public realization um, that we all went through or, or a whole lot of us went through at that time. So I immediately went and started looking for an opportunity to um, not just rally, but to build for change. And DSA in Austin is uh, a fascinating and wonderful space. And there were a few core organizers who brought me in. Um, 
some of our our elders who were very warm and welcoming, great organizers who would remember your name and what you did and what was special about you when they introduced you every time. And then there were some organizers who um, plugged me into coalition spaces where I got to sort of be elbow to elbow to people working to build power across our city and across our state. And those coalition spaces got me hooked. I'll tell you what, um, power mapping and researching and strategic campaign planning are my jam. I can't get enough of them. I can't stop doing them nice. now, even while we are running. I just, it's like addictive. Once you see like, this is a, this is a, um, this is not magic. This is something that is learnable and teachable and shareable. And we ought to know all of us. That's we empowering. all ought to know. Yeah. How this works. That's awesome. Yeah. And so DSA was that space for me. And I got to be in coalition amongst other grassroots organizations repping for DSA and building uh, what what it means when we say we're democratic socialists in Texas by strategic campaign planning and execution, by actually winning here. And that um, I'm so grateful for. It certainly is not work that I did alone, but it is work sure. that um, I think has prepared our community to, to stand with one another. Yeah. And see, I think we should talk about this a bit more because when um, the neoliberals or the centrist, centrist Democrats um, bemoan the rise of the left and DSA, they often can't bring themselves to disagree with the principles, which, which uh, are just kind of, I don't know, unassailably good, right? <laughs> to re- to re- you know, rem- remove all these social ills to take care of people. That are, but, but I think the falseness of the critique from the center needs to be highlighted because not only are democratic socialists uh, more fervently and kind of unequivocally, unequivocally uh, adhering to these tremendous emancipatory principles uh, that you know promote solidarity and compassion and and taking care of the other and each other and as Bernie just said in in, in New York this this past weekend um, being willing to fight for someone that you don't know right and those are great but also I think they comport so well with the movement politics of which you've, you've been a part and, and the things that you've just been talking about such that not only is this a new type of politics in terms of the boldness of the claims and political imagination of what's possible, but of actually understanding how the kind of solidarity that you create through organizing and mobilizing the kind of movement politics we're talking about actually makes political realities possible that aren't possible with just your normal politicking. Right. So maybe you can speak a little bit about um, what's possible, not just in terms of what we imagine and hope for, but how this very understanding of politics in this democratic sense of doing it in this way is itself the way to achieve things that haven't yet been achieved or, or that reflect great achievements in the past. Right. That, that were uh, aspiring to these kinds of principles. I love this question. This is probably my favorite thing to think about and talk about. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I win, Ryan. I so, win. <laughs> one of my um, one of the best moments for me in politics um, was waiting on um, HR thirteen eighty four, the Jayapal Medicare for All bill, to drop because I. 
I helped organize an 18 month long campaign to pressure progressive representative Lloyd Doggett to sign on to H.R. 1384. And we really needed the updated version. And I was so excited because I knew it was going to be good. But I didn't realize how good until I realized that the reason part of the reason that I was waiting was that Representative Jayapal um, was called in by the community that advocates for disability rights in our country and that there was a now a very explicit and clear section of that bill that called for community based care for people with ongoing health care needs. And for me, watching that unfold was this realization that intersectionality isn't just right, it is powerful. That now we can take this bill anywhere and we know who is who is with us on it in this deep, deeply bought in sense of the word of of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we when we go and talk to people in um, electoral spaces about policy, about a Green New Deal, about Medicare for All, about these huge visions for a future that is is better for the vast majority, of, for all of us, because, because honestly, having billions of dollars is not good for people. Um, That's right. When we go and we, <laughs> when we talk about these bills and about this vision and about this hope and this future that we are working towards, um, we have to articulate that those things don't just happen because you elect the right person. Mm-hmm. Those things absolutely require vigilance. They require the the fight, the boots on the ground. And we are rounding a corner um, in our thinking where we're starting to put into words and on paper and make promises of building an office uh, for this campaign that governs alongside the people, the same community organizers, the same labor organizers, the same um, directly affected individuals who are standing with us and making our policy stronger now, that our office will create space for them to have a permanent seat at the table as we learn to govern. And my hope is, of course, to pursue that one day, to actually be able to put that into effect, to have an office where where community organizers are working out of and building policy in, but also that we as community organizers will now have the language for our demands, that we know how how stuff gets done. Um, I know in Austin that every truly progressive policy has been a work of the people. And when our electeds acknowledge that here is the here is um, their acknowledgement list. It is having this office. It is having the, these kinds of staffers. It is having this connection with the people. We want to articulate that. We want to hand it over and we want community organizers to be able to demand of their electeds that when you get to office, we're looking for these things. If you're really with us, you're really for us, you really trust us, this is what that's going to look like. I love that. And I love, did you just do that just now? Did you just reclaim and reappropriate the term boots on the ground? 
<laughs> because because that's amazing. Because that that I mean to take a term boots on the ground, which is typically about imperialism, right, and soldiers, and to make it about the demos, the people actually on the ground, ensuring that those that seek to represent them are doing the things that actually need to be done for the people of their constituent. Like that is that's beautiful. So I hope that you just made that up just now because that's awesome. <laughs> We can definitely roll with. Yes, I did. <laughs> good, good. We're reclaiming boots on the ground yeah. for, the, for the demos, for the people. Birkenstocks on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> you know, spe- speaking of, you know, uh, uh, social welfare stuff like Medicare for all, um, you know, you, you uh, if I'm not mistaken, you, you have uh, taken up the People's Policy Project Family Fun Pack, which is definitely the best named policy in the history of the United <laughs> States, um, and uh, which is you know a, a family for for those who aren't aware, a a basically family welfare package of uh, you know paid leave, maternity grant, public daycare, you know all all the sort of like incidentals that that enable people to have uh, children in a uh you know a capitalist society or you know um all the you know all the little welfare bits and bobs that that let people do that and and it exists in some form in almost every country except for the united states um so uh i was wondering you know wh- how did you hear about this uh this policy and um you know what it, what attracted you about it We actually um, began this campaign knowing that we were going to be advocating for child care for all, period, no matter what. We just didn't realize how many people across the country were working on the same thing. Um, I was a a teacher in a daycare and a pre-K school setting, and one of the core organizers of this campaign is still also in that space. She she teaches full-time, and then she comes and organizes with us after chasing the kiddos around all day. Mm-hmm. And the two of us um, talking to the families that we have worked with across the years and knowing the choices that they have had to make um, about, you know, not just do I drop my kid off closer to home and pick them up later in the day on the way back or um, talking to the families that we had to work with over the years and knowing the the choices that they had to make of do I choose a childcare option that is closer to my home and pick my child up just before bedtime every day or do I um do I spend the money to pack a a healthy lunch or is it the the easy and cheap option because I don't have time to spend cooking for my kids to even the choices of um how am I going to pay for for childcare this month? Am I going to be able to keep the lights on? Am I going to be able to put gas in the car? I absolutely have to go to work, which means I have to have childcare, which means that that is not a negotiable. And so what am I going to give up so that I can make sure that I get this paid for? That's such a tremendous and real and widely and deeply felt issue across the country. There is yep. no arguing 
that children deserve care and deserve time with their families and that families deserve um, health and security and support in that effort. And I think that the the family fun pack, which I actually really do like the name. I kind of want fanny packs that have family <laughs> fun pack. It's <laughs> so good. I mean, fanny pack is a great name, I, but but Fanny and, and Freddie have, have besmirched it. I think I think we're in trouble <laughs> because of no no. So I I have an interesting um question. Did, did have you heard the study that they did? I don't know how many years ago it was in Israel about daycare centers and the um. The fact that a, a lot of parents were late in picking up their kids from daycare. And so they, they were trying to figure out, you know, if we kind of create a fine that will penalize parents if they show up, you know, more than 15 minutes later, whatever it was, um, you know, ha- may, might that incentivize uh, to be neo- neoliberal uh, parents to, to be more responsible and show up and so forth. And this study was fascinating because what happened is the parents ended up being far later in picking up their kids after this. <laughs> and what they discovered was that the non-market norms of like caring about the person who's watching your kids and not wanting them to have to wait after work with your children because you were not responsible enough to pick them up on time. Uh, those non-market norms, which we call, you know, being human with each other, those were crowded out, to use a neoliberal term, by the market norms. And they just thought, oh, cost benefit. Is it, is it right? Like, am I willing to pay a certain amount of money in order not to worry about being responsible to another human being? And, and, you know, now I don't have to care and think about the other humans involved in the scenario. I just have to think about how much money I have and if it's worth my, if it's the opportunity cost. Right. So I, I'm wondering if part of uh, the platform, part of the proposals, part of DSA is about getting people, not just the time or the job that they require, like jobs guarantee, or, or, or all the things that help them have the space to be human and the space to uh, advocate and be political, to be active citizens, but also the kind of logic, the kind of thinking that doesn't instrumentalize everything, that doesn't make everything a cost-benefit analysis. Um, w- what has DSA or what has your organizing, what has your life experience taught you about the need to change the way people think about each other and to not kind of resist the hegemonic ideology of neoliberalism? Yeah, that's a huge question. And and I think (laughs) that we experience it on the regular. Uh, It is often a tempting argument to make uh, the cost savings argument, right? Um, I like that example because there's an implicit assumption that the childcare worker actually gets that money, which we know is (laughs) so often not the case. (laughs) Right, totally. Um, I think one of the most fascinating instances of that for me um, has been uh, this campaign we've been working on here locally for the last year and a half um, around the decriminalization of homelessness in Austin. And this has been um, a big lift of a campaign. It has taken really... um, talking to people about an issue, talking to voters about an issue that is not necessarily something they relate themselves with, that they want to imagine themselves interacting with. Right. The ticketing of people sleeping or camping or sitting on the streets or flying a sign or panhandling on the corner. Most people who are housed do not want to think of themselves having anything to do with that because that is terrifying. Yeah. But... 
But the alternative um, way of weighing that situation that is offered in so many of these spaces where we are having town halls and we are going back and forth is the cost of having a human presence on a human presence that is less um, palatable to some I guess you would say on business, like what does it do to our businesses? Are is our business, our, our tourism dropping in the city? And when people are offered the two ways of, of valuing, either we are going to talk about basic human rights and liberty and dignity, which are not measurable, quantifiable, tradable, negotiable things. Or do we want to speak in terms of, of cost to business so many of my neighbors have surprised and given me such heart in saying that we can't put a number on this. It's not possible. You can't tell me that a person being chased around the city by the police for not having a home is measurable in dollars and cents to this to this little boutique in downtown Austin or this hotel that's already making millions and millions of dollars every year. Please take that out of the equation. You are muddling things. That is not me saying that, though I deeply believe that. That is my neighbors who are wading into this fight with some trepidation, with a lot of questions and a lot of skepticism. And it, it really is inspiring. It really is telling that at some level, we have to uh, decommodify our care for one another. We have to stop assigning it a value that is earnable, that is expendable. And that's a really great that's a really great one for me when I when I think about the potential of what that unlocks in our human relations with one another. Um, and I, I don't think that it is that dissimilar than a lot of the conversations we have when we start to begin to talk about, the environments and putting a price tag on the unknown and unforeseen and um, invaluable things that nature provides to us. There is something mysterious and something widely and deeply felt there as well. We are not willing to say, just give me it in terms of dollars and cents. We, most people are still at a point where they want to understand how it affects who they are as humans. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, the um but just to just to revert uh go back a little bit, we um we got a little sidetracked there, but but you were telling us in a beautiful way, uh, Ryan. Yes, in a beautiful no, way. Excellent, excellent. Th that was that was that was very good. But um you were telling us about how you heard about the family fun pack. The best policy name in the history of the United States, and and um, you know what what a what a what inspired you to sort of glom onto this policy this wonk Ryan wants to know the wonky you, things that you love about. Were the wonky you stuff. at a monster truck rally while while you were you know <laughs> looking at this thing? Tell us the wonky stuff that you like about the wonky policies. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, okay. So parental leave near and dear to my heart. Let's just, let's be real about both the, the expectations along gender lines that exist or mm. in parenting and how those play out in the world and not just in the time when we are parenting, but for all of our lives, whether we choose to parent or not to parent. So 
universal parental leave is really, really important. It also um, intersects with policy work that I have loved for a long time, which is paid sick leave. Um, I think that these are two in the same category. Our families needing care is a thing that happens um, to all workers and to all owners alike. Um, it is classist to say that some of us get to stay home when we need to and others of us don't. Um, I love free universe. Okay. I'm just going to go down the list. I love free school meals, period. I think that when we have some kids who eat free school lunches or free school breakfasts and other kids who don't, I don't just think this, this is true. Yes. When yeah, we amen. divide up that way, <laughs> we all know what it's like to be in elementary school or in worse in like seventh grade and feel judged by our classmates for anything. And to give kids the excuse to start judging along class lines at that age is absolutely ridiculous. We should feed everyone and that food should be good and healthy and accessible and um, universal. Those meals should be a place where we all feel, um, equitably concerned for and cared for. Uh, The child allowance, we have children at the hardest point in most of our lives and the point when we are trying to figure things out, how our housing works and how our careers are going. And before we've expropriated the wealth from the wealthiest, we haven't done it yet. Like we're young, we haven't yet expropriated all the wealth. And so we need support while we're having kids. We're young. <laughs> we absolutely, we absolutely do. And true. also raising children costs so much money. It just Ugh. costs so much money. And we, there is no, there is no acknowledgement of that. Yeah. We're just supposed to figure it out. And that's, absolutely terrifying and Mm. I look at I go and talk to a lot of student groups at this point in my life which is like one of the best parts of running for office is talking to students and they I will tell you there are so many conversations where they are asking one another are you gonna have kids Mm. does that even make sense is that a choice that is left on the table for us whether it is because of the fossil fuel industry polluting and and just like making our world smaller and smaller every day, or it is because our wages and our housing are on two different trajectories. Not, I mean, the child allowance is good. It is a baby step. Haha. A baby step. (laughs) Nice. Um, Nicely done. (laughs) In a, in a direction of acknowledging that, uh, parenting and building growing families is a work that should be supported and um, and allowed and um, understood and guarded and all of these words where we say this is a, this is a very special and important act that people choose to do it absolutely has an effect on the economy mm. but it's it's weird to think about it that way sometimes i don't want to say we are growing new workers for the market no because don't say that, that is gross really that gross. is terrible that is a bad argument that's exactly what we were just talking about that's what something that Mayor Pete that- might say, even though <laughs> like what a world we live in when Mayor Pete and Kamala Harris had like Marxist scholars as parents. And yet 
not the first uh, red diaper babies to 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 turn out very very the lesser children of greater uh, uh, parents. Mm, so it's very very sad. <laughs> very very sad. But that's it, what people say. You know, that's exactly what they say. And yeah, that's disgusting. Yeah, and that well, and there's a there's a I think there's a twist you could put on that, which is that you know, uh, you're you're not. To, to have children is not to just raise the next, you know, succession of corporate drones to, to work at Walmart or whatever, um, but is to people to, to, like, reconstitute society and to take care of you when you're old and decrepit, you know, like... like May they all be Greta Thunberg. Every, yeah, every minute of every day, like, people have to, to, to work to, to move society forward in time. And if there are no children, eventually you're going to run out of people to do that, you know, and it's not about the market, but it is about, you know, what labor you might say that like, like, uh, uh, you know, these, uh, these, these actions, these activities, this, 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 uh, you know, this work needs to happen so that the next, uh, so that society can keep putting one foot in front of the other. And if capitalism, which, you know, as you've said, uh, it, it makes it, um, it, it is, it is hostile to families because it, it doesn't, it doesn't care about, uh, uh, children. Children are an obstacle. Um, or an to, instrument or you, an instrument, yeah. right? Like we, we don't want, as Heidi suggested, to think of humans as simply, you know, workers or we don't want to think of institutions like the university where I teach as simply producing workers. We don't want to think of, but social reproduction is a thing. Yeah. Our goal as leftists, right, is to try to actually make life uh, meaningful and beautiful for every human being as an end in itself. And human beings yeah. should be ends in themselves. And, and right, like we should try to democratically control the way that we condition each other into certain types of lives. And, and I think you're, you're doing beautiful work to rebel against this kind of hegemonic, um, talk about robotic, re- reductionistic way of treating people like, uh, widgets, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's, there's 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 some old strands of sort of 1970s environmentalism that's like oh there are too many people um you know and and certainly there are a lot of people but uh you know especially when you're talking about countries like the united states that have gone through the demographic transition and are already at below replacement birth rates um you know you 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 look at japan where the the birth rate is is far below replacement, and it's going to be down to the size that it was in the 1950s, except much, much, much older than it was back then. That puts a tremendous amount of strain on the whole political system because you have this tiny working class trying to to shoulder the burden of this massive uh, elderly population. And that's not healthy either. You know, it's like it's c- clearly you don't want, you know, the population to just spiral up into the 30 billion people. Are, but at the same time, you don't want it to just collapse and, and have, you know, just a, like a final generation of people. Um, and, 
But Ryan, Heidi, I don't know what you think. Ryan, we don't need as a society to tell people they should have kids, they shouldn't have kids. But the conditions that we're in under capitalism make people worried about something they might otherwise want, right? They, they, I mean, I think under proper, you're a farmer, Heidi, right? So under proper conditions with the good soil, like things grow and people want to, to like have families. And, and this is a natural kind of thing that happens for a lot of people. And the fact that we're like, Oh, I don't know. There's no water coming this year. There's a drought. Like maybe nothing's going to grow. And we don't, we don't want that. We want people to flourish in all the ways they want to. Um, and these are proposals that help that happen, right? To, to help people choose what they might want. I think that's right. And I think that one of the beautiful threads that is weaving through this conversation <laughs> as, as tenacious as it is, because, because these are real life decisions that people are making every day is the acknowledgement of care work as work. And I know that we on the left, we like to talk about that, but, um, but actually going and talking to parents, new parents, or talking to folks who are caring for an aging parent, the, the conversation is so similar. And I love that you brought up like the aging population as, um, a burden in some circumstances, to think around, you know, the family fund pack is is great and it's one step, but to think around how we provide and value care across the margins of our society um, and how we acknowledge that that feeds us as human beings who do want to feel connected, who want to feel secure and that the security we offer others will someday come back to us that this is a normal and cultural way of being. I think though that um, we on the left as socialists have a lot of work to do to um, to shore up the kind of edges and the vulnerable places in life where we could be saying care is worthwhile here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, what one of the um, the, you know, few proud moments I have interacting with the federal government has been when I get my little social security report card, right? And it's like, here's, here's all the, you know, income you've made and here's your like tracked activities and your like projected benefits or whatever. And here's all the money you've contributed to people like my grandma to keep her from living on the street, you know? And it, and it's, it's, uh, it's valuable, not just because it's like, oh, thank goodness, I am going to be okay myself, you know, if this system keeps going. It's also like, that's right. That's what a good life is all about. It's about providing for people, um, you know, in, in, uh, in a collective context when, when you can do that, when, when you are, you know, young and able-bodied and so on. And then the, the, the people who are coming up behind you will take care of you when you are too old to keep working. And that, you know, that's just like, like the, uh, you know, really beautiful uh, instance of how society should work. And I really feel like, you know, so stuff like the family fun pack and so on, it could really take a, take to um, go a considerable distance in inculcating that kind of thinking in people to be like, yeah, you're young and you can't make any money now. Uh, you know, you're at the start of your career and you have all these enormous expenses in starting a new family. But like, 
we're going to we're going to be there. We're going to have your back because that's what it means to be a member of this society. And so when when you're you know in your you know, like middle age when you're 47 and at the peak of your earning potential or whatever, and you're making lots of money and you're paying lots of taxes, then you'll have the pride of knowing that that money is going to the people who are coming up behind you to say that they you know I'm I'm taking care of them. And that, you know, you can have some pride in that to say, um, I'm, I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm, I'm, I'm being a part of this like collective machine. And I think there's a real, you know, there's a real beauty in that and a real kind of, uh, 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 it, it feels good in a way that almost everything else in American society tries to stomp to death, you know? And it's just such a such a delight to get that. I think I've gotten like two of them in my life. Those little social security cards to be like, oh yeah, look at all these taxes I've paid that kept people off the street. Isn't that great? I feel great about those taxes. So you know, I I totally hear you, and I think that that is exactly right. And at the same time, I think that we live in this fascinating predicament where we can imagine a world where that is enough. And then coming back to reality and just saying like, oh, yeah, corporations don't feel that way. Jeff Bezos does not (laughs) feel that way. And and so there is the like the world that we are looking to build and the way that we can envision and and, um, materialize that world right now. And there is the acknowledgement that actually the family fund pack is never going to go far enough unless we are actually redistributing wealth across our society more equitably by by a a, a huge factor, an almost um, overwhelming factor. Then the family fund pack, then looking at child care that is equitable and universally sort of like owned and responsible where we are are thing that we as a society acknowledge and care for the children and the aging, then I think that that begins to make sense. So it's sort of this dualistic tendency where we have to, yes, this is who we want to be. And this is the world that we can imagine living into. And that world is not possible as long as this one where capital rules exists. That's right. And I want maybe the last question will play on that. Um, of course, Ryan, you can ask more if you want, but I have something <laughs> specifically to build on that. And I think it's very important because look, our audience already knows that your Republican op- opponent is sleazy and, and needs to be ousted. And, and our audience even knows that the progressive Democrat that's also running, um, doesn't hold a candle to, to you and, and to, um, the kind of socialist understanding of, um, principles and movement politics that we've talked about. So specifically for you, what, on the one hand, really angers you. What what do you see that really needs to be destroyed and prevented and just totally removed from uh, affecting the lives that are of our concern and our polis and our political community? You know, what really uh, specifically makes you angry that you want to stop? And then on the other hand, in terms of utopian demanding and political imagination, what is what is really really uh, the vision that you're um, clinging to in terms of what's possible. Like if, if, if we really have the, the empowerment that I know we can have and we get our act together and we really just uh, are the change that, that we know we can be, 
um, on the positive side, what's possible? So, so just, it's kind of a broad question, but like what really makes you angry and what really gives you inspiration for, for what can be different? You know, what, what world can we have and what world do we need to tear down? Yeah, I think, uh, those are, those are interestingly related questions. One thing that makes me so angry and often tired is this notion that, um, if the people, if the, all of us voters would just make up our minds about what we want and ask for it, then we would get it. As soon as we decide to vote the right way, we will have the things that we want. Right now, there's not consensus. Right now, you know, we're so divided and we see the world in such different ways. And I just think that that's a garbage argument. I don't think that that's true. <laughs> I think that all, all of us want good schools. All yeah, of right. us want clean water. All of us want a world where we can imagine living for more than a few more decades. <laughs> all of us want a house that that like actually protects us mm. from the elements and doesn't fall in on top of us. I mean, I have gone to doors and talked to people about a Green New Deal and in the midst of talking about how the Green New Deal centers equity and the needs of the working class, noticed dangling wires and had a conversation about how the landlord won't fix the dangling wires because they say they're going to kick everybody out and renovate the whole the whole thing soon enough and they don't need to worry about it. And that's our lives. Like, I... Yeah. To say that if we can build a critical mass of support for human decency and then we will get it is not true. And it makes me livid when anyone says it. And I will I will tell you that both sides say it. And they have different spins. The Republican Party is going to spin this and say... It's going to take it the hyper individualistic level, at least in Texas, that um, we all want to take care of ourselves and we can get along just fine without the government or help or whatever. But the the neoliberal uh, the neoliberal centrist Dems are going to to say the same thing in a way of like if we just keep. Um, writing good policy, if we just keep uh, electing um you know, women or, or the, or moms or whatever, then things are just going to solve themselves. And I, obviously I don't have anything against women or moms. I just don't think that electing along like that kind of division is actually going to help us achieve what we already want, what there's already a mandate for. Um, and so <laughs> what do I, what do I really, really want? What are my really big hopes? Um, my, you know, there are material policy initiatives that are near and dear, and that would change my life. Um, mm. my mom doesn't have healthcare. My partner doesn't have healthcare. Right. Um, most of the people I work with don't have it, but I have been around the organizing block enough times to know that once we win, we're going to have to keep fighting. Um, and so I think that my biggest like dream and motivation and the thing that gets me up and going in the morning is that the more of us who are building and 
fighting and working and standing alongside of one another, the more we can preserve, the more we can win, the more we can preserve, the more we can imagine together that I know I can't defend. We won paid sick days in Austin. I can't defend that on my own. We pressured Lloyd Doggett to sign on to Medicare for all, and he's already backpedaling out of that. We won the decriminalization of homelessness in Austin, and they want to negotiate with developers right. to, to recriminalize so we can have housing. These are not negotiations that any one person can have on their own. These are negotiations that it's going to take whole communities saying that we are fully bought in and vigilant. And when you get tired, I'll take your place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. So, so in a way, your hope is for the people to be active and involved enough to have that collective ability to replace each other when you're tired, to be on the front lines when you need to be, to be making the demands in a consistent way and fighting and struggling against the powers that be until just the fact of our numbers and the fact of our solidarity is too overpowering for the elites to, to keep winning, right? Yeah, I, I deeply believe that that's what it's going to take. It's going to take all of us. And it's going to take all of us doing what we can right now and then what we can tomorrow, which may be different. Um, but w- the number of people we have right now has to grow. And um, and then we can call in folks who are even more burdened and help them to be part of the fight because asking them to bring more of a burden onto their own shoulders right now is mm. irresponsible, but we need them in this fight as well. Yeah. And that's a, <clears throat> I think that's a good place to, uh, to stop. Just one more question for you though. Uh, if people want to support your campaign, make a donation, a volunteer, where do they go? Thank you. Um, super easy. <laughs> Our website is HeidiSloan.com. And we also love for folks to follow us on social media, which is all really easy to find um, when you search Heidi Sloan. Uh, that's a great place for us to have a dialogue because we know that we don't have all of the answers or all of um, the way forward right now. And we need your help to build that. Thank you so much, Heidi Sloan. It's so much more inspiring than the consultant class uh, centrist Dems who say, don't you know there are red states and blue states and the Senate has so many Republicans and you can't pass legislation if there are Republicans in office. This is so much more beautiful and inspiring and just what else can we do but do our best to you know fight for that which we all deserve. And so thank you so much for giving that message and for running and for all the work you're doing. Uh, we wish you the greatest success and I know that our fans do as well. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's great to talk to y'all. Pleasure. Good luck. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll we'll talk to you again when you win. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a plan. (laughs) Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support and it helps us keep this going. $5 